Hi, my name's Joanne Finlay and I'm a Unison organiser and I'm here today with the fabulous Ellie Drake who is Unison Northwest Young Members Co-Chair and she's also a National Forum de- Delegate. So today, Ellie and I will be talking about international solidarity and in the context of Cuba especially. So Ellie, you've recently returned from a trip to Cuba, so do you want to tell us a little bit about the trip and about the purpose of the trip? Yeah, I'm really excited to be talking about Cuba today actually, because the whole trip was such a life-defining experience for me and really expanded um, my knowledge and what I think and feel about international solidarity. So every year, I think for the last 10 or 12 years, Unison Northwest has sent two young members um, over to Cuba in conjunction with the Cuba Solidarity Campaign as part of their May Day Brigade. So what that means is that over the course of 12 days, we travelled around Cuba um, meeting Cuban trade unionists, visiting workplaces, going to different parts of the island to really learn about the history of the country, but also what a country looks like that is um, practising socialism and is leading with humanity and empathy um, and how their history has really moulded and shaped uh, where they're at as a country today. Um, so the purpose of the trip, I think, was to bring young trade unionists from across the UK and Ireland together to really understand solidarity on an international context, but also for us to really learn about how socialism works in practice and how we can um, bring those ideas and that uh, the work that's happening in Cuba and apply it to our, our own country. Um, I think for me, one of the biggest things was getting to see and experience Cuba and feel confident and comfortable coming back and being able to expel all of those myths that we might hear about it, um, particularly in the, the mainstream media or the dominant narrative that tells us that socialism doesn't work. Uh, you know, myself and 30 other young trade unionists went out there and saw that it can work. Yeah, that's quite an interesting perspective, that, the idea of um, dispelling myths. And I guess people have a lot of preconceptions about Cuba. So do you want to expand a bit on that and tell us a bit about some of the myths that you've now, you can now dispel after visiting Cuba? Yeah, absolutely. I think that a lot of people have a lot of preconceived ideas or notions about Cuba, um, particularly that it's anti-democratic. Mm-hmm. Um because it's run by one party, um, even to the point where, you know, organisations, high-profile organisations like Amnesty International um, don't recognise Cuba as a sort of humane country because it is only ruled by, it's a, you know, one party. So I think for me, what I learned the most about it was is democracy and actually how democratic a country it is in a way that, we couldn't even begin to imagine. Um, I think that the system's designed to involve the Cuban population at every level of the democratic process, um, because historically uh, that was never the case. So I think it has been designed like that since the revolution, um, so that there's not a return to violence and corruption um, and this sort of uh, build-up of wealth for one. I'll pause there. Yeah, <laughs> um, but I think the grassroots participatory nature of uh, sort of the Cuban system means that there's other opportunities for communities to get involved that are outside the electoral process. So mass organisations are a huge thing in Cuba. Um, 
And this is where people uh, can come together. They're self-regulating uh, social and grassroots organisations, and they have millions of members. Um, they're voluntary bodies with their own staff and resources, um, and they really um, shape and have an input in legislation. Um, that you know. Uh, they're really consulted by the Cuban government. They're taken very seriously as autonomous bodies. Um, they include the Cuban Workers Central, so the C CTC, uh, which is the equivalent to our TUC, the Federation of Cuban Women, where over 80% of Cuban women are involved in this as an organisation, um, the National Association of Small Farmers, University Students Federation, I could go on. So these are, in effect, local community organisations that are organising around specific issues. Outside of that, you've got the normal electoral democratic process uh, where people are elected from their local communities or from the mass organisations. And the Communist Party runs no candidates. They stand no candidates. So although they're the governing party, they don't endorse any candidates. They don't put any money into any of the elections. The people that stand to be candidates are the people that are already working in their communities and organising in their communities and are elected and nominated by the people in their communities, which is just amazing. Um, so it really takes this grassroots approach um, where everybody has the ability to really get involved. I think as well something that's quite um, pertinent particularly for me as a young member, although I'm 25, um, you know, everybody can vote at 16 in elections in Cuba, which is, I know, something that there's a lot of strong campaigning and focus on to get that here in the UK. You can stand for local election at 16 and national election at 18. Um, and the uh, Cuba's parliament, uh, the National Assembly of People's Power, which is a fantastic name for a parliament, <laughs> um, is made up in a similar way to the local assemblies that they have. So it really grows on this sort of national scale. But the people that are elected in the local assemblies can um, ultimately be elected to the national thing. So there's a lot of feeding into everything. Um, I think something that I'd like to say at this point is that um, this trip to Cuba really expanded my knowledge about the country and my knowledge on it was fairly limited before sort of April this year and um, so everything that I'm saying is the things that I've learned but also I think it is merits merits worth saying like fact check it doubly like <laughs> I am not an authority on um on Cuba but from the people that I spoke to and the bits that I learned um you know I'm more than happy to pass all of this information on because fundamentally like people are so adverse to cuba because the dominant narrative says that we should be scared of it because the dominant capitalist narrative says that we should be scared of socialism right so you don't want to celebrate a country that is succeeding in a socialist way because then people know that there's an alternative to this neoliberal capitalist society that we're currently living in that is really not working for anybody other than the wealthy few um so i'm more than happy to come back from cuba and talk about dispelling those myths um, and saying that it is a democratic country and that in fact um, they recently last year made changes to their constitution which was a huge thing and hadn't been done I think in 25 years um, and that process in itself was 
just completely dominated by the Cuban people. So this draft constitution was made. There was over a million amendments submitted by the Cuban people that had come together in their different wards um, and localities to really have an input into this constitution. So it's a constitution that is written quite literally by and for the Cuban people. Again, could you imagine that happening here? Um, It's just so inspiring. Um, And then once all of the amendments had been submitted in the final draft to the constitution was made it went to a referendum as to whether the cuban people would actually approve it um which it did pass i think with um something like 88 percent um of the vote you know so again the cuban people are a part of this at every step of the way um we could learn a lot from them i think in terms of democracy that's really eye-opening ellie and despite i know you've been a bit humble there saying that you're not an expert but it's pretty clear that you've developed quite a lot of expertise on this and so for those of us who are maybe a little bit more ignorant to uh, the situation in cuba could you briefly talk um, a little bit about the blockade that's been placed on cuba please yeah absolutely so this was something um that was completely brand new to me um i don't think i even really knew what a blockade was um And also I heard people talking about a blockade and an embargo quite interchangeably. Um, And I think that one of the things that I got, um, I received from speaking to Cuban communities quite loudly was that Cuba doesn't want this blockade. It doesn't want to be a part of it. It's had um, a significant impact on its economy, its ability um, to get basic material aid, whether that's for um, healthcare, education, um, local amenities. Um, And what a blockade, what the US blockade on Cuba um, fundamentally means is that anything that is produced by international companies, if that has a US part in it, or a company from the US has had some hand in developing a part of a product that could be sold, the US has effectively said that they cannot sell that to Cuba and that if that company does, then they can be fined. So if you have a company in Germany that is selling, say, a car to Cuba, but that the a part of an engine is US made, effectively that German company would not sell that car to Cuba because they would be at risk of facing huge, significant fines from the US for selling it in the first place. So although the blockade isn't a direct impact on Cuba, it completely affects Cuba's ability to trade and be an economic power internationally. I think what's significant about the blockade is um, that it's the level of risk with the fines. The fines aren't given to every company that trades with Cuba. They are done as and when the US sees fit. So there's this constant sort of layer and level of fear, I think, so that that's what inhibits companies from trading with Cuba because they don't know if they will be fined. They might get away with it, but also they might not, and they're not willing to take the risk. Um, Fundamentally, that's sort of my basic understanding of it. And I think that I would really encourage and implore people to find out um, a lot more about it. Um, The Cuba Solidarity Campaign website has some amazing resources that will explain this in a far more eloquent way than I am. I think fundamentally, what I do know, though, is why is the the US put this blockade on Cuba? And I think the running theme of, of what I was saying before, because it's scared of seeing socialism happen in action. 
Cuba was a Spanish colony, and when it got independence from Spain, um, it was annexed by the US um, to still receive internal military protection. Um, so they overthrew the Spanish oligarchy, they got independence from Spain, and the US sort of positioned themselves as an ally. But actually, it's because of where Cuba's situated within um, Central America and the Caribbean that, again, it all comes down to trade, economics, money, and um, how the US can use it as a an island located as the gateway to Central and South America to further prosper and further its own interests and needs, right? So Cuba resists against this, the mighty US. This tiny island resists against the United, the great United States of America. Well, the US don't like that, do they? So what, what can they do? Well, the only thing that they can do, and that's affect the the trade, the finances and the money that this little country receives. Because at the end of the day, if you don't get in line with the US, then you're on your own. And you're not just on your own from the US, but you're on your own and isolated from the entire rest of the world. Um, so the US boycott the Cuban economy by, by stopping energy imports. Um, that was sort of initially. So there was a special period in Cuba's history uh, where they basically had no energy. Um, and I think by nationalising, fundamentally by nationalising and recovering their own economy and taking everything into public ownership and government hands, Cuba was attacking the US and their imperial interests and fundamentally what the US is built upon, which is self-interest, individualism, making money. That's everything that Cuba isn't. Um, on the other side of that, you've got this country as well that, like I said at the beginning, is leading with humanity and empathy and internationalism, again, rather than this self-interest and this idea of you can make it for yourself if you just work hard enough. No, Cuba is a country that's recognising that we have a power and a duty as communities and as citizens of this world to look after each other um, and that that's how we're going to progress and make gains across our society. So I think that... The blockade sanctions companies who sell to Cuba that have US-made elements, and this is just the US's fundamentally only way, really, to really punish Cuba for daring to, to go it alone. Um, we had a seminar before we went to Cuba on the trip, and um, a man uh, that was talking to us about the history of Cuba um, sits on the Cuban Solidarity Campaign, NEC, and he said that the Cuban people have manifestations of extraordinary commitment to what they believe. And that's something that I really found out there is that people are, they believe in socialism, they believe that it works and they don't have very much, but they make sure that everybody is protected and looked after with what they do have. And it's just so inspiring and frankly puts the Western world to shame. Um, we had a 10 hour coach journey from um, just outside of Havana to Sancti Spiritus. Um, and on that, we used the opportunity to speak to our Cuban guides, Frank and Candy, um, about Cuba and really take the opportunity to sort of get their views and talk to them. And they told us about these amazing um, gains in healthcare and education and the international solidarity um, that Cuba um, acts out, you know, by sending doctors and aid to places all across the world. Um, and then there was a moment where they asked about our situation in the UK and um, one of our comrades I, I was on the trip with um, from Scotland said, 
you know, um, about the rise in, in food banks. And in fact, it's not even a rise in food banks here now, is it? It's very commonplace for families and a lot of our communities to be relying on food banks. Um, and I, I started crying because the Candy and Frank, the, the Cuban people we were with, were scandalized that we are the fifth richest economy in the world and we have millions of people across our country relying on food banks and it is scandalous like nobody in cuba is is hungry like they might not be full but everybody has a house everybody has access to work everybody has access to healthcare, and everybody has access to education no matter what um and we can't even provide that for some of our nurses that are providing huge public services, but then are having to rely on food banks. And yeah, it, it, frankly, it does put us to shame. Well, thanks for that bit, Ellie. I think you've really um, painted a picture, actually, of Cuban the values of Cuban socialism and the sort of deep injustice of Cuba being punished by America, and especially in light of the issues that we face as a country as well. So that was really that was mind blowing stuff. That was good. And um, what I'd also like to ask you now, one of the things that I know about you, Ellie, is that you're clearly a strong woman. You're a feminist, and um, so I kind of wondered if you have any thoughts on qualities and Cuba um, is there any specific any specific specific reflections you've had um, particularly on women in Cuba if you could tell us a bit about that mm -hmm. absolutely um so I think I'll begin with um what Fidel Castro described as the revolution within the revolution Gender equality was seen as an integral part of the revolution um, and the principles of the new Cuban society. And the Cuban constitution explicitly guarantees women economic, political, social, cultural and family rights and opportunities that are equal to men. Um, so they're enshrined, they're, they were there from the beginning. And I think this is, again, another inspiring element to Cuba's story is that quite often we can get caught up in the class struggle and um, women and other marginalised communities come afterwards. And what I really understood from Cuba is that women were integral to building that process. They were integral in the revolution, um, in overthrowing Spanish colonialism and US imperialism. And they were integral to building this new society. It was It's a society that is really co-created between people across marginalized communities which was very inspiring that's not to say that cuba is this you know <laughs> utopia where all women across the globe should move to um if only a place like that could exist you know i think the patriarchy is is still pervasive and i don't mean that in a disrespectful way i mean that in a sense that we were all outside when the contamination came down, you know, like the patriarchy is a misogyny and sexism um, amongst, you know, other things like racism and homophobia, a, a global structures and powers that can't be dismantled um, solely by one country or, or one revolution. However, I think that the reaction and the changes and the consciousness about those issues that marginalised communities face is really inspiring. So whilst we were there, um, there was currently like a very significant advertising campaign about stopping um street harassment and catcalling um so you know cuba isn't is not 
like those things don't happen um you know we we're in liverpool at the moment and those things most certainly happen here and that's definitely emulated in cuba but i think the reaction and the way that it's dealt with is again very different um it's embedded within the education system women are um you know make up the majority of judges and attorneys and lawyers scientists technical workers public health workers professionals in the as as an economic uh, as a workforce they're not excluded at all and have very much always not even been encouraged because we don't need encouraging because (laughs) we've always been in those spaces and we should always be in those spaces but have been co-creators in building those workforces um which is incredibly inspiring i think another thing that cuba gets spot on is um its level of uh representation of women within its parliament over 53 percent of uh cuban mps are women and again this changes the discourse of the country because if you have people that are setting the laws and um shaping the country in the direction of the country if they're representative of how the country is made up then of course those people are going to be included so it has a trickle down effect whether that's people of color women people with disabilities if you have a seat at that table if you're a part of that process then People across society will benefit from it. But if you've only got a majority of people called John in a chamber, you know, then the amount of people that change is going to be enacted for is going to be very limited. Um, I think for me, what um, was really humbling, again, was the access, the complete free access to healthcare. Um, particularly when it comes to the government subsidising abortion and family planning services. Um, There's a high value on prenatal care um, and there's even offers of maternity housing to women before giving birth. But for me, fundamentally, that aspect of family planning and reproductive, reproductive justice and healthcare is fundamental, particularly where we're having a moment in the UK where abortion rights in Northern Ireland is very much part of the cultural conversation at the moment, which is fantastic because I was fortunate enough to live in Belfast for a few years whilst I was studying and I met and worked with women activists that have been campaigning for decades um, to get the laws in Northern Ireland changed. And it has been a long process. And even over the last 10 years alone, you couldn't even utter the word abortion in Northern Ireland, really. So to really see that Westminster has recently debated it and said that unless Stormont comes back together by the end of October, women and pregnant people across the line will have access to abortion healthcare is amazing. That doesn't mean the battle's won. But historically, the UK has really done a disservice to our Northern Irish siblings when it comes to reproductive justice and healthcare. And again, going to Cuba and seeing that that was there from the off, you know, there was there was no conversation about it. A woman, it's a woman's body and it's a woman's right to choose. And abortion was always a part of their national healthcare system. Again, I think was just incredibly um, inspiring and moving and just really proved to me that that's how it should be and that it can work. You know, a lot of the conversations that we have, whether it's about healthcare or education, um, women making gains in an inherently sexist society, we're always told that it can't work for X, Y, Z reason. And Cuba is the living example of saying no we can make it work and why can we make it work because we want to make it work because this is the right thing to do and fundamentally i think that's the most important thing it's what it's about doing what's right
Well, that's all we've got time for for this month, but we'll be back soon with another episode from our The Future Is Now series celebrating the TC's Year of the Young Worker. And in the meantime, if you'd like to access resources connected to this month's programme alongside previous episodes of the podcast, then head over to our website at www.unisonnw.org forward slash podcast. And don't forget to subscribe to us on iTunes or your favourite podcast platform too. Thanks for listening.